0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone
1: Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Uh, Today, our guest is Michael Lind. Uh, He is... A fellow at New America, uh, a professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs here in Austin, and the au- author of uh, many books, including his latest book, "The New Class War: Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite," which is the subject of our conversation today. So, uh, Mr. Land, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. So, uh, one of the things that I appreciate about you is that you are a generally heterodox thinker, uh, which is pretty rare. These days, and so with a book titled "The New Class War," you know someone might think that it's like a pro-Bernie screed or whatnot, Uh, and that's not quite where you're coming from. Uh, Although it does seem like you have a a, some sympathy for the populist impulses behind both uh, uh, Bernie on the left and someone like uh, uh, Trump on the right. So, but why don't you just uh, break break, summarize what, what what is the book about? Well, the book
0: could just as well have been called The New Class Compromise. Uh, What I do in the book is I build on the argument of uh, James Burnham, uh, a leftist who became an early conservative and associate of uh, William F. Buckley Jr. in the 1950s, that uh, the Marxists were wrong, that uh, socialism was not going to succeed capitalism, uh, but that uh, the small business bourgeois capitalism of the 19th century was being succeeded by what Burnham called the managerial revolution, that is, uh, the rise of uh, credentialed, educated managers and professionals. Whose uh, access to power—it wasn't necessarily their own money; it was their position in enormous bureaucracies, of which some of the most important were private corporations, but also government agencies, nonprofits, uh, and Burnham even included uh, the military as part of this new managerial elite. Uh, and he argued, as I do in the book, that uh, the vast majority of people in in modern society uh, are what Marx called proletarians, it's not necessarily a Marxist term, it goes back to ancient Rome. It means people who have to make a living by selling their labor in a labor market. Uh, and, you know, whether this became an oligarchy or a good society depended on how much bargaining power the, uh, the working class majority had against the uh, elite credential managers.
1: So, well, we definitely have seen uh in recent decades a split between uh those who have roughly those who have college degrees and those who do not in terms in all sorts of metrics not only uh direct economic metrics like like income but even uh you know family status uh issues with drug abuse life expectancy all sorts of things seem to be diverging and uh i take it that you view this as, as the outcome of the con- current conflict, uh, perhaps subterranean, between the managerial elite and the, the populace?
0: Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. I argue that you have to acknowledge that uh, semi-hereditary classes do exist in the United States, and and the book is not just about the United States, it's about the entire transatlantic Western world, where where you see very similar developments in politics and society, including uh, populist revolts, like the one that led to uh, uh, the election of Trump in the U.S. Brexit in Britain, and the rise of various populist insurgencies in Europe. Uh, If you look at uh, college diplomas, we tend to treat those as yes gateways to opportunity. But to some degree, they're almost like letters of nobility. They're almost like aristocratic titles. In as much as uh, if you have college-educated parents, you're much, much more likely to get a diploma uh, than if you don't. Uh, I have the data in my book. Uh, High-scoring students from the poorest uh, part of the country uh, of the income distribution are much less likely to get uh, bachelor's degrees than very low-scoring students from with a well-to-do college-educated parents. So, most of the center-left and the center-right for the last generation uh, has, uh, and I don't, I don't think I'm caricaturing this, they, they sort of assume we're close or near to a meritocratic society where there, there's, there's no real serious uh, class divisions and you can, you know, uh, with, with effort and with opportunity you can end up in a quite different place from where you're born. On the left, the progressives tend to see race and gender as imposing ceilings on upward mobility. Uh, the central right, I think it's safe to say, or at least the more libertarian right, you know, tends to uh, see obstacles imposed by government on small business formation, for example, you know, the, preventing people from starting their own small businesses. Uh, my argument is that both of these visions are, are really misleading. The vast majority of people, about 70 percent in the U.S., their education is with high school. Most of the jobs that are being created in absolute numbers are fairly low wage low benefit jobs in a handful of sectors uh uh, it's not the old manufacturing sector it's the non-traded domestic service sector it's retail and hospitality uh health care and a few others uh uh, and if you look at the according to the bureau of labor statistics of the top 10 jobs that are being created again this is in my book uh, in absolute numerical terms only one registered nurse requires any education beyond high school and a little on the job training so so one of the things i try to argue in the book is that uh most people are probably going to end up in or near the class into which they are born uh even in the us and western europe where we do have far more social mobility than existed in the past but but you still have class divisions that perpetuate themselves uh, through generations uh and also Education, the, the favorite panacea of the center left, is not really the answer because uh, the vast majority of the jobs really do not require people to go to college.
1: So uh, I do. I want to talk uh, a little bit about you know, how we how we got here. But before that, you, you did you correctly note that populism is on the rise, not only in the United States but throughout the. Well, not all of the developed world, but certainly uh, most of Europe, and uh, even some other places in like, India or whatnot. But um, and when people talk about what the cause of this is, it seems to be, uh, break down into there's kind of uh, two big buckets, right? So on the one hand, you have folks who would say that well, this is the result of uh, economic anxiety or economic stagnation uh particularly among uh working class voters uh or or other folks um and then the the alternative explanation is well it's just because of uh the phobias you know xenophobia uh homophobia islamophobia and maybe uh, also throw in some uh russian disinformation campaign something like that so your book is clearly in the economic camp, as far as the explanation goes, but what's wrong with those other explanations?
0: Well, I, I would, I would uh, characterize my book differently. I do stress the ec- economic interests of the working class a lot, but I also stress power mm-hmm. uh, as an independent variable, and power broadly defined. So not simply political power, but also there is such a thing as economic power. Uh, and also cultural power in the media and in uh, higher education. And I argue that in all three of those realms, uh, government, uh, the economy, and the culture, uh, 40, 50 years ago in the U.S. and similar Western democracies, uh, there there were really powerful, influential grassroots organizations that magnified The collective power of of working class people Uh, in in politics. These were local political parties and and machines that didn't like them, uh, which shows in the case of the united states the state and federal officials uh in in the economy there were trade unions Uh, in the culture there were much more powerful uh, churches and civic organizations which policed the media in hollywood for what they considered to be obscenity or or things that disagreed with the values of their working class constituents and you know uh, conservatives at least free market conservatives tend not to like unions uh you know, cultural libertarians on the left, and not to like, you know, the churches, particularly the more socially conservative ones, and nobody really likes the old-fashioned, you know, uh, political machines like the courthouse gangs we had in Texas or or the urban political machines. But I'm just saying, as an analyst, the atrophy of those kinds of local organizations that uh, had influence at the state and federal level means that. Of enormous numbers of people, the majority of people now are just kind of disconnected. They have no influence on politics, except maybe to cast a vote every few years, if they vote at all, uh, on for some candidate who you know may represent a party. But the parties have kind of degenerated into labels that can be bought by uh, billionaires. And then like a uh, uh, Bloomberg against Dyer and, Steyer and uh, Trump in his own way. Uh, so, so I would argue that. It, 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 to use uh, James Carville's uh, phrase, to paraphrase his famous line, it's not the economy stupid; it's the power stupid.
1: Okay, and I, I accept the correction because you do indeed talk about uh, cultural factors and uh, uh, the Legion of Decency, the Hayes Code, and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, so I, I want to talk. So, so we did. You you correctly note that there was a period in American politics after World War. World War II, where you did have these strong uh, intermediate institutions, the unions, the churches, the ma- mass political parties, the ma- the machines, as you say. Uh, and then uh, those have all seemed to have declined. And, you know, you I, I think you have a line in the book somewhere where you say that this was not it was not that Allen Ginsberg and Milton Friedman hatched some conspiracy in order to. You know, uh, uh, take power away from these these institutions and reorient it towards more elite tastes uh, or preferences. So, but what did happen then? How did how did that system break down, and how did we get to where we are today?
0: Well, well there were there were different causes in different areas. So, for example, if you look at. Uh, the uh, political machines partly it was the evolution of the suburbs people just moved from closely knit urban uh, neighborhoods or rural small towns to kind of anonymous suburbs and they just don't know their neighbors and and uh, uh but you know partly the political machines were deliberately dismantled in the 1970s by reformers uh, who created the present system of primaries and caucuses that we have working or in some cases not not working very well uh, in in this election season. Uh, From the 1830s, when Martin Van Buren put the party system together all the way up until the 1970s, the parties were actually federations. Of state and local organizations. They were like clubs, and uh, the higher ups had to be nominated by the, the more local chapters. And uh, this was seen by many reformers, particularly many upper middle class educated reformers, as horribly corrupt. It was these uh, old urban or rural bosses, you know, in their smoke filled rooms, smoking their cigars, picking candidates. And they thought, well, let's just let the people choose and so they created the primary and and caucus system where the people actually don't choose a very tiny percentage of the people usually unrepresentative you know often fairly affluent and well educated with leisure time who can show up to the caucuses or a very small group who vote in minorities you know now choose the candidates Um, of uh, those who can raise money in advertising, so so that you seen the parties disintegrate and cease to function as actual federations. Uh, in the case of uh, unions, uh, you know th- there, there was an offensive against. Trade unions and, and, and the old trade union system that was inherited from World War II in the United States was very dysfunctional. Uh, there were, there are a whole lot of problems with it. So I'm not idealizing it. Uh, and I, th- I think if we rebuild, uh, organized labor somehow in the 21st century, it would take quite different forms. But, but, you know, there were both legal rulings. There were regulatory rulings against labor. Uh, there was, uh, there were right to work states like Texas luring businesses, uh, from unionized states. And and also, you had global labor arbitrage—just shutting down unionized factories in the U.S. and opening them up in China or Mexico or somewhere else with with very unfree, low wage labor. Uh, So, uh, in the third area of the culture, that's an area where essentially democracy was shut down by judicial activism. Uh, That is, the Supreme Court, in rulings on censorship, simply removed. Entire areas of uh, policy from democratic legislatures, you know, from the local city council up to Congress. And so these are matters of basic rights. So things that used to be fought over yeah, at the state and local level and, and at the national level in Congress Uh, You know, including you know issues about uh, defining marriage, about uh, uh, censorship in the arts, about obscenity, pornography. Uh, All of this, uh, from the 1970s to the present, was put off limits to uh, public influence. Uh, so the only way you have any influence in these areas now that they've been judicialized is if you can persuade a five to four majority of the Supreme Court. So there were different reasons why these uh, local mass membership, you know, kind of working class uh, representative institutions deteriorated, but I, I don't think there's any doubt uh, that they are gone now. And as you say, uh, it's, there wasn't some great conspiracy, but just by default. Uh, the college-educated elite, which is about a third of the population at most. It's about a tenth of the population if you count graduate professional degree holders. Uh, And I'm part of that class. I'm part of the managerial overclass. Power has siphoned up to us uh, from the majority of the country.
1: So uh, you, in your book, you talk quite a bit about Trade and immigration as two elements that have had uh, very different outcomes depending on, you know, uh, which chunk of the population you fall into. So uh, uh, why don't you explain a little bit about about that and your take on that? Yeah, all
0: of the Western democracies, including the U.S. after World War II, had a a system called, uh, sometimes called corporatism, uh, but the best term is tripartism. That is where you had institutionalized uh, collective bargaining between representatives of labor and employers, uh, often encouraged and brokered by the national government in the interest of keeping the production going, particularly in, in World War II and, and the Cold War. Uh, and, you know, and so both sides had, had to make concessions. And, you know, labor had to agree not to strike, uh, except as a last resort. Uh, and in return, management, you know, made various concessions to uh, organize labor. Uh, th- th- that, was, that was accepted by Republicans uh, as well as by uh, Democrats. Uh, it, it, President Eisenhower addressed the ALCIO convention and said, we can never go back to having labor as a a helpless, uh, powerless mass. Uh, Both Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan got the uh, support of the Teamsters Union. Uh, So it's really... The identification of, of Republican economics with, you know, complete utter unremitting hostility to organized labor, which was always the case of libertarians, uh, is really just a phenomenon of the, the post-Cold War period. Uh, you know, so so one of the things I argue is that and, and we're trading and, and immigration fit in there. Uh, you know, obviously we want to actually sell our high-value-added products to uh, foreign consumers. You know, they have the biggest foreign markets that we can in, in, uh, in order to create productivity growth and jobs at home. So, so expanding the right kind of trade uh, is important. Labor arbitrage is not trade. Uh, that is, labor arbitrage is when uh, a, a, uh, the same job that was done in a higher wage, area is now done in a lower-wage area of the country or in, in a uh, foreign country. Now, you can boost the profit share of the company at the expense of the wage share that way by you know following the, finding the cheapest possible workers, uh, but you're not actually increasing productivity. The, the poor worker in China is no more productive than the relatively well-paid worker in Germany, for example. Uh, they're just poorly paid, uh, and this, this distinction has been erased. Uh, and so, you know, if, if we're going to, and it's important politically, because if you look at the heartlands of populism in the Western world, it is in deindustrialized regions mm-hmm. that were hit particularly hard by offshoring and by subsidized Chinese import competition. It was the, the American Rust Belt, the Midwest. It was the uh, so-called Red Wall of industrial northern britain which just switched from the labor party to the conservative party by uh, giving the conservatives a huge you know possibly temporary advantage and you see the same thing in the industrial regions of france of germany and of italy uh the the constituents for populism tend to be former unionized uh mostly but not exclusively uh, native and white working class voters who for most of the 20th century voted for parties of the center-left, but as the center-left has become more of a coalition of upscale uh, of uh, managers and professionals, allied with minorities and immigrants, uh, these these voters, they lost their home in the old center-left parties. And they not, haven't necessarily found them a new home in parties of the right. You know, under Reagan, they were called Reagan Democrats. You know, and some people have spoken about Trump Democrats or Obama to Trump voters. And they're, they're really the key to the rise of populism in the Atlantic world.
1: Okay, so let's go through, because you consider a number of different alternative responses uh, that have been put forward to how to deal with these issues, because uh, you were not the first person to, to notice some of these problems. So um, among the issues that you describe, uh, one would just be, okay, uh, we need... Uh, higher the, the way you deal with the issue is through redistribution, right? so you know uh, if there is a small segment of the population that's doing much better in the labor market, uh you raise taxes on them and then you use the money to uh, to fund goods and services uh, to public services uh Andrew Yang, one of the democratic candidates, his big proposal is kind of a, a universal. Guaranteed income uh, is a kind of pure form of this idea, Uh, but you don't view this as being uh, politically or fiscally sustainable.
0: Well, I I don't think it is, because if you look at uh, U.S. politics, in 2016, for example, uh, Hillary Clinton, the Democrat, defined the middle class as, as households making up to $200,000 a year and said, you know, I won't raise taxes on the middle class. Obviously, Republicans, you know, are less inclined to, to raise uh, uh, taxes on that group. And so to me, the idea that you can uh, tax uh, the billionaires who many of whom have their, their, you know, savings in, in offshore accounts to uh, evade taxation, you can't even tax the upper middle class lawyers and dentists and doctors. You know, so I, I think that any uh, plan of the left to massively increase taxes and then massively have redistribution to pay off the so-called losers of globalization or the losers of the new economy, I just think that's that—that's completely unrealistic. Uh, the, the other problem that you have is uh, it's, it's really insulting. It's really patronizing. Uh, that is, the premise is that only a few people in society – are really worth much uh, and they should be allowed, you know, just uh, to get as rich as they can. Uh, And then everyone else is basically a parasite, but, you know, you don't want them to die. So you'll give them a thousand dollar check a month or something. Uh, And, you know, politically, this is a very unpopular with populists on the right, but also with the old fashioned social democratic pro labor people on the left, The, uh, the union left, has always rejected the idea of a universal basic income. You know, they they want to work. They just want to be paid well and have decent benefits, whether from the employer or the government, But, but they believe in the dignity of labor. They don't want to be collecting a welfare check once a month from the government and the same is true with uh, with populists, you know, it's this idea that there's nothing wrong with working in fact, welfare benefits, according to most populist conservatives, should be tied to some sort of work ethic so so I think this support for a universal basic income it very much is kind of an elite uh, managerial overclass thing that, that is really shows how out of touch uh, much of the elite is with the, the emphasis on having well remunerated, decent well-paying jobs how important that is for working people
1: uh okay so next uh uh, next option uh which seems to be growing in popularity is uh, would be some form of socialism right so uh we don't as we're recording this we don't know the results of the iowa caucus exactly uh but uh and perhaps we never will but um, it appears that, you know, Bernie has done uh, very well, and, and uh, he seems to be doing pretty well in the polling. So, uh, you know, why not socialism, uh, you know, nationalizations, uh, uh, et cetera, as the response here?
0: Well, I think in practice, if you look at Bernie Sanders in the U.S., what they mean by socialism is, is redistribution. It's the first option we already discussed. You would, you either redistribute income or you would, uh, socialize some things like healthcare. And you, you can do that and still have a capitalist society. Uh, if, if you define socialism in the strict way as actual government ownership, Of the means of production, you know, then the argument I make in the book is if if what really counts is the countervailing power of the working class and merely transferring ownership from a group of rich private shareholders, you know, to nominally the federal government is not going to change the balance of power necessarily in the workforce. You're still going to have bosses and you still have workers. And unless you think that in the new system where all the shares in the that are owned by the federal government instead of, you know, uh, vast numbers of mutual funds and rich individuals, are the bosses who are going to treat the workers any differently? Is anything going to change in the actual occupational structure? So my argument would be that if workers have countervailing power and they have the leverage to negotiate good deals and good wages from employers, uh, it doesn't really matter whether you know the, the company is public or private. It's, it's looking at the wrong issue. The real issue is the bargaining power of non high school educated workers. Uh,
1: okay, so. I am curious about uh, a particular feature of the book. So uh, as I mentioned, you you are the author of uh, many books and including, uh, I believe you wrote or co-authored a book called uh, In Defense of Big Business. Uh, Big is Beautiful. Big is Beautiful. There you go. Okay. Yes. Uh, um, So so that's interesting uh, because you also in the book, one of your – Proposed solutions is uh, increased localism, trying to devolve power down to the local level. So I was just curious how you squared those two ideas of the importance of localism uh, without, uh, you know, um, fetishizing. Awesome. Yeah. That, that, that's that's a very good point. Uh, in the new class, where I talk about localism in the context of political governance, right?
0: Uh, I, th- I think our cities are too big. Some of our neighborhoods are too big. You know, we could have what I call wards. Mm-hmm. Dr. Thomas Jefferson, of, you know, a few tens of thousands of people, and, and really a lot of things could be devolved to that. But that that's new government. Uh, you're quite right. The previous book I published, I co-authored with the economist Robert D. Atkinson. It was entitled uh, Big is Beautiful, Debunking the Myth of Small Business, and we just showed that – In all technological societies, the trend is for bigger and bigger firms in industries where you have increasing returns to scale, like manufacturing or network effects, like uh, telecommunications and utilities. And this is for fundamental engineering reasons. It's not a conspiracy of rich people to create artificial monopolies. Uh, you know, it, it, this is something you see in all modern industrial societies. And we had this debate a hundred years ago. And the positions were more or less the same as they are now. One was socialism. You, you don't have any problems with big firms. You just nationalize them. Uh, another was the uh, antitrust position which is sometimes called populism. I argue producerism or small producerism is really more accurate. That is, you use antitrust policy to break up big firms into lots of little small firms. Uh, And uh, as Rob and I argued in Big is Beautiful, this is not practical in manufacturing. Or, For example,
1: you're not going to get mom and pop aerospace companies designing things. Let's just be realistic. So uh, there, there are areas like restaurants where there are no economies of scale so yeah fine you always have small businesses there
0: so the third option which was the one that was adopted by mainstream republicans as well as democrats in the middle of the 20th century was we we recognize that in much not all of the economy you're going to have large organizations oligopolies as in cases almost natural monopolies, uh, uh, you have what John Kenneth Galbraith, the economist, called countervailing power. Uh, you either regulate them with the government or to prevent them from exploiting their their pricing power, uh, you have organized labor bargain with them. Or in some cases, you have organized consumers uh, who can bargain with uh, these big companies. Uh, and... You know the advantage of the countervailing power uh, approach is that it does not require an all-controlling government. Uh, that is, the government where you have labor-firm relations, for example, in manufacturing, you have big labor and big firms. The, the government can, you know, encourage them to come to a deal, but it doesn't have to. Write all of the regulations itself Uh, so so uh you know i argue that a lot of the problems that we have in our economy actually come from the lack of bargaining power of uh workers particularly workers where there's no uh, collective representation at all Uh, and it's just a kind of a take it or leave it uh offer by employers uh you know, you could fix a lot of these sectors without creating massive government bureaucracies. But you know, uh, and and you could do so by various methods of collective bargaining. Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York recently uh, is very interesting experiment. Rather than simply decree what the minimum wage in the fast food industry would be, what the working hours, the conditions would be. Kind of in an old fashioned 1950s, uh, 60s approach, he uh, convened a wage board. It's an old fashioned institution where you have representatives of fast food employers, representatives of labor, even though most of the people are not unionized, but they have some representation they can choose, and representatives of the public interest. And then you say, okay, negotiate a among yourselves, And if the result is reasonable, you know, then that will be packed up by the government. And so that kind of indirect negotiation among big firms and uh, organized labor, uh, I think, makes sense in the 21st century in areas where you have uh, natural economies of scale. You're naturally going to get pretty big firms. And it's just, you, you know, it, it, it makes no sense to argue, as libertarians do, that a janitor has bargaining power with, you know, Microsoft or, or a giant steel company or something like that. You, you just don't. And even John Stuart Mill, the classical liberal, supported unionization for the reason that, that was just absurd, you know, to say that, that uh, ordinary working people can negotiate with enormous Powerful enterprises, national and global. Uh, so I, I think that we need to revive this idea that uh, we should exploit the benefits of large, efficient, dynamic firms. They tend to drive productivity and investment. And this uh, demonization of big business is a hundred years out of date. They tend to be the leading firms in the leading industries you know tend to be big because they're dynamic not because they're corrupt but at the same time uh power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely so unless they're balanced uh by some force in society uh you know they they can run amok and it's better to give workers the bargaining power to balance them uh, directly rather than to create an all-powerful
1: uh government let me ask about the cultural side of things, because um, the country, you know, the institutional power of the churches is not what it once was. Uh, America is becoming a much more, uh, if, if not secular, than at least a unchurched nation. Uh, and, you know, people have different opinions about, you know, whether that's good or bad, but it does seem like just as uh, it's hard to see how unions are going to return to their former glory of the 1950s, the churches, uh, you know, it d- doesn't seem likely that they would be able to play the same institutional role that they did in the culture uh, back in the post-war period. So what, what would replace them and how, how would that develop? Uh, you know, how would you oh, develop that? I, I, yeah. I agree with
0: that, as I point out in the new class war. There's a uh, long-term trend towards secularization uh, in Western societies uh, with declining church membership and influence. Uh, Having said that, uh, religious, uh, very religious people, uh, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, tend to have more children than very liberal, secular people. So you're going to have a significant minority, even if it's not a majority uh, of, of quite religious, socially conservative people in every Western society. Uh, both native and, in some cases, socially conservative uh, immigrants. Uh, so, uh, if, if, as I, I said, the book could be called the new class compromise, or in this case, the new creedal compromise. Uh, you cannot have a, a functioning, stable society in which views on religion and values are simply the 51% who won the last election and imposed by force on the 49% who lost their election, Uh, and arguably you cannot have a stable uh, society if, if the definition of morality and value depends on the personal opinions of five out of nine Supreme Court justices at any time. Uh, so, so I, I think, given the fact that the U.S. and Western European democracies, which are the closest in in, in their in, in their culture, uh, are are going to be permanently divided between you know atheists, uh, uh, religious people, communitarians, libertarians, we we need to have some kind of uh, institutions not to let one group repress the others. But just to make sure everybody's view is heard on, on some issues. And, and I think there needs to be something like a fairness doctrine that's set up by the government, but that represents different views. People on the right call this viewpoint diversity, where, uh, uh, for example, the media tends to be very, very secular and left liberal. And if uh, you know, there should be some sort of oversight body. Where, uh, you know, social orthodox Jews, conservative Catholics and Protestants, uh, conservative Muslims for that matter, can, uh, they wouldn't have have power, but they would at least be able to publicize, we don't like the way we're being portrayed, you know, Uh, uh, conversely, uh, there's no reason to limit. These uh, worldview groups or these creeds to traditional supernatural religions. So, you know, if you want to have the uh, militant atheists uh, to say that we're mistreated and, and portrayed wrongly in, in K through twelve and, and in uh, the media, then then they should have that right too.
1: Okay. Um. So, as a as a final question. Um, We often ask our guests what their favorite movie or TV show uh, relates to the topic of the conversation. So is there – do you have a favorite uh, employer, employee bargaining movie uh, or cultural product? (laughs) Uh,
0: That sort of took me by surprise. Uh, Jimmy Hoffa has been in the the news lately. There's a new book by Jack Goldsmith about – touching
1: on that and, and of course is, he was the leader of the teensters uh-huh. uh, and, and mob it, connected is this the uh, is this the book where he claims that he was involved uh, with the, the death of Hatha or
0: no no that was a, that was another book by right. an individual whose name I've forgotten who uh, Martin Scorsese just made a movie called The Irishman Right, uh, based on this uh, individual's purported memoirs, but the historian says all lies. So. Yeah, I think this. not so I don't, I don't,
1: I don't, I don't yeah. recommend that. There is actually an interesting movie uh, from Sylvester
0: Stallone back in the '70s or '80s called Fist. It's F I S T, where he portrays this Hoffa-like figure who, uh, back when when you had this terrible labor violence, uh, where the the companies hired pri- private detectives, goons, basically to beat the daylight out of out of any union organizers. Uh, and it just shows how in the circumstances of that kind of violence, you would have this idealistic labor guy cut a deal with a mafia, right, to fight back in these violent clashes and it's a tragedy. But but it does address some and it's not a bad movie. I'm not a great Sylvester Stallone fan, but but he, he does a very good job. It's called FIST, which is the name of the uh, Teamsters Like Union.
1: All right. Well, I I really like the first couple uh, Rocky movies. It got a little schlocky there at the end, but the the first uh, the first movie in particular is actually not. Uh, it's, it's like it's like, same thing with Rambo. the The beginning movie is you know, it's kind of dark and and dreary, and then by the end, the you know he's like taking single handedly taking on uh, the Soviet Union. Well, in, in, like in the
0: words of the Hollywood mogul, the American people love a tragedy with a happy ending. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, on that happy note, uh, I think we'll end it there. Uh, Our guest today has been Michael Lind. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urbane Cowboys.